Welcome to Restore Gospel Podcast. Welcome back. I'm Mike Barrett. Corey Stark here. <laughs> Two friends having casual conversation <laughs> about the things of eternity, and we welcome you back into that conversation. So uh, I was listening to the, well, I know you have some things on the on Genesis or the beginning. I was listening yeah. to the Bible Project because they've been talking about Genesis and the stories of, there's three main peoples, the, um, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and then the, not Christian, but back then the Hebrew understanding of creation and how they were all similar but different. And in and in the Hebrew or the, the ones that we have recorded, uh, God basically brought order to a disordered place of nothingness. Uh, it gets pretty philosophical and deep and like, how do you have nothingness? But the other, the other histories had like, there was this plot conflict between uh, uh, evil or uh, uh, got the the creator had to defeat something in order to have a creation be. <clears throat> and the the Bible Project guys were talking about this, so I'm just going to play a clip from their their podcast number two fifty two on the creation. And it was funny, but it really is kind of poignant on how great and awesome uh, our God is. Mm. So let's listen to this. Yeah, and I'll bring them in here. The abyss work for him, <laughs> so to speak, and that is like the ultimate kind of power. Yes, that's to right. To be able to go to something that is in complete disorder and turn it into potential. Yeah, so that's what he goes on to say. In contrast to the Babylonian conception, where Tiamat has to be slain and annihilated before the cosmos is created, the biblical picture doesn't portray the destruction of the waters or the abyss. Rather, their control and ordering by Yahweh within the created cosmos. Then he notes, and he says, also has a similar connection to Egyptian creation traditions. Except in, in Egypt, the God emerges out, out of the of waters. It. So the portrait is that God can make the unproductive state of disorder work into his purpose to bring about ultimate order. It's not a threat to him. If you think about it, however, these opening lines are the only thing that create plot conflict in Genesis 1. In other words, there's no challenges or tensions within yeah. the chapter. Yeah, and then you just watch God doing his thing. It's like watching the only Ross bit. paint. Yeah. There's no conflict. Yeah, totally. This is good times. Happy little trees. <laughs> Bob Ross, there's no plot conflict in that show. No, there's none. <laughs> Except in the opening line, there's a little bit of like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. I guess th this could all not be here in its ordered state. That's the, that's the the plot conflict is the potentiality of non-existence. Yeah, the plot conflict <laughs> is yeah. Um, if a creative, powerful being didn't do anything... We wouldn't be here. All you have is disorder. Disorder, which in their cosmology is the chaotic dark chaotic waters. waters. But Yahweh Elohim doesn't emerge from those waters. They are his canvas. So and he it, sure doesn't have to fight them. So the phrase, in the beginning... So I, I don't know if I've ever heard those guys crack up. They're pretty. Yeah. They, they pretty sounded like us for a minute. But like uh, <laughs> he said, happy little trees. Like yeah. God's just. <laughs> but think about it. Picture God with the afro. The right. Bob Ross. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's funny. They, that was funny. But, uh, but I think it makes a great point that the conflict is or the, the tension is mm. God is an all loving, <laughs> powerful God that created us for his purpose uh, to love on us and for us to be fulfilled in him and to need him. Mm -hmm. And uh, he created out of, well, eternity. I mean, he, he never didn't exist. He brought into order um, that, that uh, unordered state yeah. and everything under his rule. But we were uh, talking a little bit about well, you had, and by the way, this is a first that Corey showed up without his computer. And I, I, don't, I feel so good. I, just, I feel free. He's just sitting over there. I mean, I'm just, there's nothing blocking my view now. Yeah. So yeah. That's, um, 
So we'll see how this goes. We're just going to oh talk my gosh. about it. We do not need a computer. So Mike and I have been friends for how many decades now? And uh, we've never had a pro- needed a computer to have a conversation. So this is actually really, really good. Now, you know, I like they mentioned in their um, in, the, in the intro you played Yahweh Elohim. And the, that word Elohim in the Hebrew was the the god of justice but it was the god of of laws and rules and it's interesting to me that the bible could have started out that the god adonai which is the god of mercy who created it but this isn't a separate person don't get me wrong it's just a separate name for god the god who is the god of justice is also god who is the god of mercy who is you know elohim adonai el shaddai the god who nourishes it's all the attributes of god the the point though is that he created all these things with rules and order and and the first thing to disobey that order was the thing made in his image you know and and so he creates this creation and he breathes his spirit into him so you know the the character of god when it says we were made in god's image in the hebrew that meant not just that we looked like him resembled him physically but we were made with his character the ability to dream and create and and think and um expand and so in this whole creation, you think about it, it, it was all based on the rules of his, you know, this God of justice, the law and order. But because we broke the rules, he, the, the plot conflict, to use their term, is now he still was the God of rules and orders, but the only way we could come back to him was because he was also the God of mercy and became that sacrifice for us to return. So it's like he, you know, we, we sort of created the tension in the plot conflict, if you will, but it was all part of his attribute to be able to redeem us, to bring us back. Uh, the first few um, lines of Genesis, they did a whole podcast on t- the two lines, but um, it says in the beginning, God created, um, well, it talks about God and then it talks about his spirit went upon yeah, the water. The water, and then it talks about light being created. Yeah. What do you know about those things? Well, so <clears throat> this has been an interesting parallel uh, study pursuit for me recently. Uh, in fact, last Sunday's Sunday school class started touching on these same things. Lots of things, but one of the under-the-hood sort of things was just the Hebrew language of it all. Um just to start at the beginning, since that's how the scripture states in the beginning in the Hebrew, one thing that the Hebrew scholars point out is that we use the word the, we say in the beginning, but in the Hebrew, the word the is omitted. It doesn't really exist. It's just in beginning. And like in our language, how we could say, you know, I have a book or the book, they would just say, I have book. And then it's implied. But the beginning part is interesting because we tend to think that all of creation came into being right then, but the Hebrews saw time as a circle, not linear. And their word beginning doesn't imply that everything started, like every molecule of anything anywhere in any part of creation started then. The the inference in that is in a beginning, you know, and it's interesting because the scriptures talk about, in the Book of Mormon specifically, it uses this phrase, the works of the Lord are one eternal round, like they go in a cycle, and how God's cycles have existed where God was with man in the beginning and the end of time, God returns to be with man in the end. You know, it's like that cycle completes. Um, you know, we see these in lots of places, but this idea in the beginning, the, the word created is interesting. God created heaven and earth. That's our word. But I've learned in the Hebrew that the, again, it's just because of the translation, we think created poof and it all came to be. But they said that the better word for creation wasn't to create, but to fatten. It is literally what it means in Hebrew, to fatten or to fill. And um, in this creation aspect, it's like God filled the earth with life. God filled the, the first three days of creation. He's separating. He's separating the waters from the heaven and the light from the dark. He's separating. And the next three days of creation, he's filling all that. He's filling the seas that he separated with life. He's filling the earth with life. He's putting man there. And, and this idea of fattening is that um, it's a different idea than just, you know, poof, everything just came into existence. Anyhow, that's that's a couple of the first things that jump out at me. Just just thinking about it reorders my thinking about what maybe that actual first phrase of Genesis means. Mm. Hey, yesterday I, I sent you a picture. I was driving down the road 
in the rain and fog and yeah, <laughs> and this old car, not old, well, this car passes me, one of those, uh, you know, mid-80, four-door, really big with lots of metal space on the sides <laughs> and the yeah. back, and there were these magnets all over the car. And the first thing that caught my eye was uh, it said Eternal Life Coach. <laughs> I thought, what? <laughs> yeah, magnetic of like bumper stickers. Or right, yeah. <laughs> so then it got in front of me, and on the back it says, uh, what did it say? Jesus I'm is it up. Uh, Jesus is not... Uh, Jehovah Junior, uh, the Trinity uh, doesn't exist. Let me, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm finding it right now. He's got his, <laughs> he's got his phone number. Jesus is not Jehovah Junior. There Jesus is no is, Trinity. Then John three colon one through fifteen question mark. That's interesting. Do you know what John three one through fifteen is? Yeah, yeah. What is it? It's the whole story with Nicodemus. Okay. Yeah, and I don't have my computer to tell you that. But it's the, I'm trying to. Yeah. But the John three sixteen is you know kind of the famous scripture of the New Testament maybe of all for God so loved the world you know but the whole le- thing leading up to that is the type and shadow and that's the punchline we omit the type and shadow it's the comparison to the <clears throat> you know it's it's God and and the rebirth that we have to have we have to be born again and then he tells how the serpent was lifted up by Moses and he is compared to that and that's the reason why John 3:16 exists is because he's saying for this reason just like the serpent was lifted up so the the thing that bit them could heal them so the son of man has been lifted up but son of man doesn't mean biological son so yeah that's so he he had the 1 through 15 on his car but, but he had a question mark at the end of it right it's interesting. I'm looking at the picture. Right yeah, here. I almost. We should just call this guy. Yeah, I I would love to get him. Well, on he's here. got his phone number on his car. Oh, Apparently, oh, he wants he, to be. Uh, <laughs> he wants to be spoken to. He's uh, and it's I see here he's driving a Cadillac Deville. <laughs> Those were the big ones, right? Uh, yeah. Well, so I'd love to talk to him, but this comes back to this intriguing question you're asking, Mike. On Genesis, so things, just to add a little bit more to the Genesis, like one, first five verses, and it has to do with, I think, this guy's message too, is in the Hebrew, there were untranslated words. And this was fascinating to me to realize, uh, just where we read in the New Testament, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, those are the Greek words, that they actually didn't start with Greek. They were uh, Hebrew words that, represented the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The Aleph was the A or the Alpha, and the Toph was the Z, if we call it, or Omega in our language. But it was, um, of their 22 letters, it was the beginning and the end. And thousands of times in both the Old and New Testament, this simple sign, we could think of it as Alpha and Omega, but it was the Aleph and Toph in the Hebrew, would just appear anywhere in the text. And, and Hebrew scholars... Um, some even to this day scratch their head at why those were inserted. They think, why did Moses just put this, be writing about, oh, and then we left Israel and Egypt and then Aleph Toph. You know, there's this, it's just interjected. And they literally skipped over it and it was never translated into English. And so what's, what's interesting is that people going back realized, you know, th- this was, could have been many things, but it was, it was God. It was a name for God. It was a reference to God being everlasting, you know, from A to Z, if you will, kind of how we'd say it, um, God being eternal. But what's more is that there are places where this Aleph, Toph, when they're together, they can be like Lincoln Logs or, or Legos, I guess, snap together other Hebrew letters on, and it takes on an expanded meaning, but it doesn't lose the original meaning. So in Genesis 1, you see God created, and then there's this Aleph, Toph, which doesn't get translated into English, and then it says the heavens and the earth. But the Aleph Toph appears in that first sentence. And then where it says the heavens and the earth, you have the same Aleph Toph with the connection in the Hebrew that means man or connector. And so all of a sudden you see this literally between the word heaven and earth, you see this symbol for God and a man connected together as a word. And in English, that's simply translated and, heavens and the earth. But in the Hebrew, looking at the original characters, which all retain their meaning, there's a symbol of God as a man, literally, in the Hebrew. And then jumping down to the fourth verse where it says, and God said, let there be light. The Hebrew word for light is or, like metal or, that's how we'd call Mm. it. 
and they use that word, or and it's in the Hebrew, but there's a place where it says, and the light was good. That or, that light, is again connected with the Isle of Toph. So it's like eternal light, everlasting light. And it's, it's different. It's just not the word light. It's light connected to God. The Book of Mormon only uses the phrase, the Bible doesn't, you know, the everlasting light of God. This is, this is exactly what it means mm. in Genesis. And, and, but, but coming back to this guy's car and bumper sticker, um, the, the message of the Book of Mormon, you don't have to pull any punches. The reason Abinadi was killed was because he said God himself would take on flesh and become the infinite atonement for us. I mean, that, if there's any message to me is the most important message of the Book of Mormon. And, and it causes conflict for us, you know, talking about plot conflict, causes conflict for us because, one, we have a Bible which we were told even in the Book of Mormon there were things that were changed and it what originally was plain and precious and simple didn't remain that way through time. So God in his mercy gives us this Book of Mormon. Nephi's shown that in vision. That gives us this record of, let me say, gives us this record of Joseph that was written in a plain and precious manner so we'd know this message. And every writer of the Book of Mormon writes this, and uh, that, hey, God would become the infinite atonement for man. God, The reason Jesus is called the Son, uh, Abinadi explains, is because he took on, God takes on flesh, and that's what it meant to be the Son. But it's all, it's all retained in those original Hebrew letters. So in the beginning, God... Uh, created the heavens and, and connected them to the earth. He became the connection between He became and the earth. connection as yeah. he took on flesh and blood. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's already foretelling this. That That's, um, and once again, we don't have good English ways to, to speak of what that says in Genesis, but the Book of Mormon then adds meaning or or corroborates the what they're finding about early Hebrew now, the everlasting light. Yeah, yeah, the connection of <clears throat> taking on flesh. Um, interesting, too, in the Hebrew, I wish I could speak it to say it with a little bit more authority, but all I can share is what I've read about it, that, you know, the, the individual letters kind of still retain their meaning. And when you break down just this phrase, in the beginning, you get single letters that that show God the Father and the Son, and you get uh, a symbol that means uh, the cross, and you get this a symbol that means to die, and all these small words can be broken out of the bigger word. And, and in English, that's not possible. You know, I, I couldn't take the word, you know, Michael, for instance, Mike Barrett, and start breaking it into little letters and get, you know, M-I. Well, what does M-I mean? That must mean Michigan, you know, or yeah. something like that, right? Uh, we, we can't do that. But in the Hebrew, you can. And uh, maybe we can link it. I've got three or four videos I've found on YouTube that uh, all show Hebrew scholars taking the original words from the Hebrew in Genesis 1 and breaking it into words like crown of thorns and cross and die and and, um, first fruits and all these things that we attribute to Jesus. And they are all, it's not like it's a Bible code thing. It's simply just taking the root words of the Hebrew that are already in these existing words and showing where the essence of the story, like Isaiah said, since the beginning, I've been telling you the end. That's what Isaiah writes. Since the beginning, I've been telling you the end. And in the very first sentence, breaking down the individual letters, you get a beautiful telling of how God would become the sacrifice for man. Yeah. So in the Book of Mormon, it's clear that those people knew the end from the beginning. They knew about Jesus. And even though they must have gotten it from this the story. I mean, they they had it made known to them from the beginning. But why? Then you wonder why why the people didn't recognize when he came to Israel, and that was it had to be just because of wickedness. And along the way, they they left that to worship the Mosaic Law. That the Mosaic Law became everything to them. Right. So it was just kind of clouded. Yeah, exactly. Even though it existed, it wasn't in their their minds. And so, he he was. He was the giver of the law, and they didn't realize that. You know, it was like it was all to point to him, and and they couldn't see it. You know, um, so in the last hours of Jesus' life on earth, you know, he's. It's interesting that he's 
he's challenged by all these people who are like the the doctors and lawyers of of the law, if you will, you know, and 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 um, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't ever scold them, but they didn't understand that all of that pointed towards him. They couldn't see it, but the people in America saw that it all pointed towards him, you know, and that was kind of the big difference is that early on the the writers of Joseph's lineage who came to America realized that all these types and shadows of this law of Moses, the sacrifices of the lamb and there all these other attributes were all given for one purpose to become the to to teach them to recognize that that God would become the ultimate sacrifice that his blood would have to be shed, you know, in human form so that humans could return to him. Yeah, that's <clears throat> the chosen episode six this past week, absolutely amazing. Uh, I tell you, pictures just were so many words, and then when you see it acted out. But to see Jesus uh, went into the temple as they're reading the laws, and and this man was there with a withered arm, and um, and he healed him right in front of the Pharisees, and they were so angry that he had done that on the Sabbath, and and this this. Um, conflict of being able to see how they were worshiping all of those laws and they brought them all out, you know, and that was righteousness. And he was like, I'm here for the people and to heal them and to, you know, all of those things, bring them back to me. And, and that's what I'm going to do. And you, you say, this is evil, you know, to do this on the Sabbath. And he mm. talks about how he's created the Sabbath. And mm. it was, it was great. That, uh, that show is just, uh, is so inspired by the Lord, I think. Mm-hmm. It's um I don't know how those those guys can write and act that out so it's just gifted by the Holy Spirit in my opinion. There was a quote in there because Mary Magdalene kinda backslid and um and fell back into some sin and then she just felt like I just am not I can't come, come be good enough the rest of my life and the disciples go and get her and finally bring her back to Jesus and and he looks at her and, and he said this quote, I wrote it down, did you really think you would never struggle, never sin again? Hmm. And then he, he gently says, someday, but not here. Wow, wow, that's interesting. That, may that be gives be, you hope. That you may know. be my favorite part of the entire series, someday, but not here. It's like you're going to have uh, struggles, and, and that's the reason that that from the beginning that plan of redemption was made to connect us back to heaven, right? Cause, oh, wow. Because we're going to, we can't. We can't be perfect without sin. Um, that's I think that's where my maybe my major mind shift has has gone uh, in the last few years, and is continuing to go. Was was when I was little, I, I thought that I could, um, you know, I could be baptized and go to church all the time, and that through doing this, somehow um, my heart would would change enough that I wouldn't sin, you know, and I could live a perfect day and then a perfect week and then a perfect month without Mm. any sin. Um, And, and now I see that, um, well, you know, Bob said that when he was here sharing his testimony, he said, you know, he's been here 60 some years and, and he tries, but he said, I always, you know, end up falling into sin. And he said, I really think that one day there's going to be a miracle that takes place where we no longer do that there has to be there has to be a a miraculous change um and wouldn't that be just the presence of jesus I well mean, i think yeah this in the, in a sense and that's and that's again why um we need a savior yes. um, not just to be resurrected um our flesh to be resurrected but for our spirits to be um completely changed and resurrected mm-hmm. um without any stain of sin again or effects of sin so that's that's interesting, and that's not saying that doing those things, you know, praying and 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 spending time with the Lord in meditation. That I believe our hearts are supposed to change, like Nephi's, where he's he's praying that oh that I would abhor sin, and yeah. later on he says oh my soul abhorreth sin. I, that's that's true, but that doesn't mean that in a moment of weakness that you don't have a a, a bad thought or uh, but. Certainly, you know, even if you do get to that perfect day, your your heart still is uh, feeling the effects of all of the sin in your life, and um, you well, know you the know, knowledge of sin, the, the 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 knowledge that there's evil all around you. You're you're still under the 
the umbrella of the sinful world that we live in. What you just said, it triggered a thought. You know, think about Peter or any of the disciples. You could probably use the example, but the fact that he had been with Jesus and you'd think, hey, if anyone had a license to be perfect now, they had been with Jesus for a few years and everything. But even on the day Jesus is crucified, Peter, who had been with him, denies him three times. And isn't that what we're doing when we sin? You know, think about it. We're denying Christ. We're denying the truth. We're denying faith. We're denying things that we know are right. And we're choosing something that isn't right. You know, Mm -hmm. whether it's something we say, whether it's something we watch, something we, we think about or focus on. And so that's, you know, sin is ultimately denying Christ in, in the sense that we're choosing a lie of, of sin, that it's going to bring some happiness over the truth. And, and so yet he's, here he sins in this time, even of the most critical time in humanity, and God still uses him. And I mean, he brings people to Christ and he doesn't condemn them for that, right? And it's like, you know, guys, <clears throat> you think about it, if any of these guys had all been baptized and ordained by Jesus, if you will, and and yet... His sin is so obvious and it's so um, abhorrent, if you will, to consider. I mean, we read it with the perspective of time. You know, we we weren't in the moment. He he was, but they were still all doubting Jesus. But that's what we're doing when we sin. But yet his um, his life spiritually wasn't over, you know, because of that. He, he somehow, through the interaction of the Holy Ghost, later, like as is recorded in the book of Acts, you know, Jesus comes later to them and breathes on them, you know, as he's, as the resurrected Christ, uh, wasn't on the day of Pentecost. It was in the upper room. It says he came and he, he breathed on them. He says, receive the Holy ghost. And they get this greater power, you know, just like the Nephite civilization. You think it took Jesus to be present with them till you had this time where the whole society was, um, was mutually respecting each other and their laws and their love. And there wasn't sin. You know, we don't have a lot of details of that, but that golden age of the Nephites, it took Jesus being present, you know, to this, to when the sins overcome. And when you just said, Mike, thinking about how it was growing up, thinking if I could just do this for a day or a week or a month or whatever, I think that is one of the major focus changes I've realized for myself when in all of our life, when we've talked about Zion, how it's like, you know, and I'm not, whether or not we build Zion or Zion somewhere else, but just this whole idea to me, the focus growing up was that, well, well, God's bringing Zion to, or we're building Zion or whatever, however you want to phrase it is all like a reward for finding the gospel in the last days. But it was all, it was like the sanctuary because there was a lot of evil on the outside of the world. And if we didn't get there, we were going to be caught up in the bad stuff. So it was like this sanctuary we had to run to. But I never connected the fact that what what I needed wasn't just this Zion so I could be protected physically or spiritually from the bad stuff around. I needed I needed to be with God so I could be separated from my sin. You know, it was like I needed Zion. I needed His presence in Zion so that I could be free from this spiritual bondage I walk in throughout my life. And and that's what I think was never really taught by the church. I mean, we kind of had this idea of Zion was this thing of our own creation that was going to come. And it's like, no, this is so the whole world can flow unto him and learn of his ways. And so that they can then willingly beat their swords into plowshares, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> my friend uh, yesterday posted <clears throat> a thing on Facebook and listen to this quote from Andrew Murray there is such a danger of our being so occupied with the things that are coming more than with him who is to come. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's yeah. really true. Uh, especially with our, our culture, we, we really focus on, on that Holy city. Um, and rightfully so, but it's because of who's going to be in that city and what's going to happen there? Not not like what everything you just said, which which was a great was a great reason. And when I was younger, to come to Independence was to be uh, because I wanted to be number one safe, and I wanted to be with people of the same uh, background and knowledge and religion. Mm-hmm. But that's that's. Uh, I think the other notion with that was always. Uh, we were going to build a righteous city so that Jesus would have a place to return. And that seems to be backwards, that Jesus will return and under his direction 
there will be a, a righteous place established. <laughs> and then the, it says, and then the gathering commences. Yeah, that seems to be the exactly the message of the Book of Mormon, 3 Nephi 10. I would love to yeah. say our hope <clears throat> as a church, whatever's left of it, be shifted from, it's it's not the hope of, of it, it almost sounds blasphemous, of Zion as much as, sure, that's, that's good, but guys, Jesus is coming back before the main gathering of the people, that's hopefully going to be soon, sooner than later. It has to be sooner than later. I mean, uh, we see that even even non-Christians see the strain and stress in the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I just just never realized that, you know, the greatest— force working against God's goodness in this world is, is the sin in my own heart. You know, it isn't like, you know, I, I guess, like you said, the shift has to be, a, it can't just be, Hey, it's everyone else's problem too. I mean, obviously there's the, the, the kingdom is coming when, when Jesus comes and sets this thing in order. Right. Um, I love what you just said too, that this process is that Jesus comes and then that work commences. That was a big mind shift for me it, just by reading the Book of Mormon and, and just kind of putting blinders onto everything I'd heard in life and say, okay, what are the prophecies of the Book of Mormon? And the prophecies were really clear that this gospel, this message about how God would become the sacrifice, you know, was the thing that the Jews had missed through this law of Moses. And But he tells the Gentiles about it, you know, our people, and we end up rejecting it. But eventually when this word goes back to the house of Israel, they have a change and they, that precipitates uh, 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 two things. One, there's, there's judgment on the Gentiles if they don't repent, but then there is eventually a city built that begins by the people who the gospel, this word originally came from, these people of Joseph. They're the ones that says, that because this was the covenant for their land, they build the city, and then the the Gentiles who are repentant assist. You know, we we become part of it. But that's where God starts his his missionary program. You know, Jesus says, "The power of heaven will be there. I will be in your midst." And that's like you pointed out, Mike, in Jacob three, the parable of the olive tree, where all of a sudden the servant of the vineyard seems to transform and he's the Lord of the vineyard. You know, there's just one person in the end. That's Jesus in our midst. And he's working to take this word to the world, to transform the world. And and that's the other piece of this whole story of Zion. I never understood. I kind of thought that when, when Zion was established, you know, my, my younger thinking, Zion was established and kind of started in Jackson County. And it was sort of protection for people who were in the church or came to the church but that was sort of it, and that was like the end of the story, and then God comes, and then whatever for a thousand years. But this process that the Book of Mormon describes is something bigger and more beautiful in that God says, and then the work commences where this word will go out to the remnant of this people, and then the word commences where this word will go out to the lost tribes of Israel, and then this work commences where it goes to the whole world and then all these people flow to Zion, you know, for the same purpose so that our sin can be removed and so we can know how to live and abide in him. And that <clears throat> that word commence means begin. Yeah. Begins. Yeah. I, I for a long time <laughs> thought I bet uh, it ended like commencement with younger, ceremony. Like a commencement ceremony. Yeah, right, but no, right, it's right, the right. beginning. Yeah. It's the beginning. Yeah. So that word that that's when it begins. Yeah, just recently it was stated, you know, our hope is you know, the, the temple a lot and that, you know, that Zion will go from there westward. And I thought it's okay to look at a scripture like that or those and say, you know, maybe this, maybe that didn't happen because of wickedness. Okay. I mean, the church isn't going to buy up all the land west of the temple lot now. They're, they're selling. I mean, they've sold land. They're, there's no church to do that right now. And um, so... That. And we can't be locked in that process thinking, well, that's the thing that's got to happen. You know, there was a there was a commandment in 1830, 31, 32, you know, for some people to come here. But even uh, it's interesting when you read the church history, you know, I know you and I have both read some of David Whitmer's account. And I think he's pretty 2020. He said, you know, the, the people of the land were sinful. There were they were. I don't want to get too far into that, I guess, right now. But the, the, the his opinion was they deserved to be kicked out. I hate to say that because these are our forefathers, right? But the but the idea of, you know, Zion could have been redeemed even now, that whole message meant that these people were kicked out. 
they could have returned, but they were still wicked in their hearts. And that was that was what the message was. And this idea back then that, hey, they were going to buy up all the land. Well, you know, it was Indian territory back then, right? And and um, But those things all kind of fell through when, when the people were scattered and came, you know, for, for years before they were really able to come back here. Mm-hmm. You know, that was, that was part of something that they, they were trying, but I don't, I don't feel like our people need to be locked in. I still think there's a lot of people who believe, well, Hey, first thing we're going to do is we're going to buy up all the land West of, you know, the courthouse and independence. And then, and then we're going to, you know, whatever that means. We've got to see the bigger picture and the book of Mormon tells the bigger picture of how this all starts. Well, our hope, there's certainly hope there that Jesus is going to return. And that's interesting in the, when he came to the Nephites, how they had righteousness for so many years. And can you imagine if he comes and stays? Mm-hmm. You know, and he didn't say to them, well, I'm here because, you know, this, you bought up all the land west of the courthouse in Zarahemla, you know, or whatever. It, it wasn't like something we, we look, we've been trained to look at something so specifically. And it's like, we're talking about the God of creation here. Who's, who's going to make his will known and done. And no matter what, um, failings we had in the past, it's going to be the same like when it came to the Nephites. You know, there was tremendous destruction in some places, but there there was tremendous beauty and peace because of his presence. And the whole thing is we need him to return, and then he sets all these things in order. Mm. What, so back to the what we started out today, oh, yeah. the Trinity. What, what do you think... Um, what do you think a, a guy <laughs> like that... I wonder what the impetus was to... Get him to uh, to plaster his car with all those yeah, signs. Like, like for him, that's like a. Uh, it sounds like a blasphemous a thought that there's three. I wonder if he's like ex LDS or something. Oh, or, I don't know. I'm going to call him. I'm going to call that number. Yeah, call that number. In fact, we can link the thing on the podcast notes. Hit the picture over the back of his car. I wonder that too. Um, I don't know who who it would be, but you know, there's. Well, that word Trinity is not found in the anywhere in scripture so again words are words change over time and uh and some uh, i think you can use that word trinity and have a completely right understanding Mm -hmm. of of god um but you can also use that word and have the wrong understanding of god i mean i I look at the trinity as the you know the the father god the father god the son and god the spirit and that those are three aspects of god and and we've talked about this before one of the other words that is very complicated is just the word god because i think you know maybe 80 percent of the time when we say that we picture the father and we say jesus when we picture the son but really the, that word God, if from the Book of Mormon, what that means is uh, this three aspects of the eternal God, exactly. and and that's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And one, you know, we don't talk about the Spirit as much as we get into debates whether the Father and the Son are are two separate uh, conscious beings, or con- yeah, yeah. Um, entities that they were, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because the Book of Mormon clearly teaches, especially if you look at the brother Jared's account where he touches the stones or he sees God's finger and he shrinks back. I didn't know you had flesh and blood. And here God, first person God is talking to him and say, did you see more than this? And then all of a sudden he goes, no, but show yourself unto me. I mean, that's a beautiful principle for all of us to learn to say, God, reveal yourself to me, right? You know, and, and then he says, Hi, I'm Jesus Christ. Oh, and this is the body of my spirit. You know, and it's the like the body of my spirit, right? And and this is the beautiful, plain and precious truth that I believe we are given. It's like don't mess this up, guys. This is the truth. But there are there are reasons why we see it separately. You know, and personally, I see this very clearly that God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all the same conscious being. I believe that's what the Book of Mormon teaches. I don't challenge other people if they see it a different way because I know there's scripture that says it other ways. Now, I'm not going to try to start marking off every scripture and tell you why. Well, it really doesn't mean what you think it means, but there's a lot of that. Maybe I'm going to actually share some of that uh, online uh, and maybe even in the Sunday school class coming up. But there's a, I'll, I'll give you one though, for instance, when Stephen, the apostle, is martyred, it's in Acts chapter 7, 
this is this leads into Saul's conversion. Saul is holding the coats of the people who are stoning Stephen, right? He, he witnesses this guy's death. Well, Stephen is preaching to the people, and then all of a sudden they cover their ears and they can't stand it anymore, and that's when they kill him because he says this. He says, I, I see, um, you know, he talks about how they those people had killed the prophets before. And the reason is because they prophesied of the Messiah. But then he says, and I see the Messiah, Jesus, standing on the right hand of God in power. And and so a lot of people in our day look at that scripture and they say, oh, well, see, there's two personages. You know, he sees, he sees God and he sees Jesus. But that phrase, to see Jesus on the right hand of God in power, has nothing to do with a visual thing. It's a Hebrewism. To be on God's right hand means you have God's full authority or full presence or and full blessing. That's what it means to be on the right hand of God. And this whole idea of clouds, it's just this idea of the same when Israel was passing through the desert and there was a cloud by day and a fire by night. God is represented by the, by the cloud. I've, I've read this from several different places recently where this idea of what Stephen was saying wasn't anything like, hey, I'm seeing two personages right now. What he was telling people was that this person, Jesus, you you killed, was fully God in his in his in earthly authority. And that's what they were saying on the right hand of God. And that's why they kill him. Well, what I just saw yesterday, I didn't realize this, is that those are the very words Jesus uses before Caiaphas, you know, this high priest in, in the Sanhedrin council before they're about to crucify him, is because they're intently asking him, and I'm doing all this without my computer, so I won't read the verses right now, but I could look them up. But if you, if you read, it's in Matthew and Mark and Luke, I believe all, all three accounts. When Jesus is before the Sanhedrin and they're grilling him and they're saying, Tell us if you're really the son of son of God. Well, remember, son to them didn't mean biological offspring. They they knew it meant exactly what Abinadi explains in Mosiah eight. The son of man means that God took on flesh, and that's in Mosiah eight, around verses twenty five through twenty eight in there. But to get back to Jesus' story, they're saying, "Tell us if you're the son of man," meaning, "Tell us if you're God in the flesh." That's what it meant. And Jesus says, you already said that I am. And then, and, and then he says to them that the time is coming where you will see, and he says the same words that Stephen echoes, the son of man standing on the right hand of God. Well, again, he wasn't saying you're going to see a vision in two personages. He says you're going to realize that I am God fully in the flesh. And that's when they shout out, what need have we of witnesses? This was important in the Mosaic law. They knew that someone could not be put to death physically without three witnesses stating the crime. There had to be three witnesses that this person had committed the crime. And and now they're they're saying, we don't need any witnesses. You you just committed the biggest blasphemy of all. You know, you're not the son of God. You're the carpenter's son. You know, that was this point they were making, and and that's when they crucified him, because he made the statement. So Stephen is simply echoing what Jesus said to them, to the Sanhedrin council, saying, I am God, and those mm-hmm. were his last, last words to them. What do you, uh, so when our, <clears throat> when our faith started back in the 1830s, and and Joseph had his vision where he saw two person, it says two personages, is that the language. Ha ha. So we've talked about committees. Um, if you, yes, if you read in church history, it states that if you read in bust about every book that was ever published, it says two personages. If you read Joseph Smith's personal diary of that night, which is also available online, there was only one personage. That's his personal diary. Yeah. In his personal diary, the account that Joseph writes in his own pen there was only one person. It's, there were not two. Is that in the uh, Joseph Smith papers? You can find it there. Yeah. You can find it in, uh, there's other, in our church history, Joseph Smith papers is kind of maintained by LDS people. And I think it's, it's great. No, no issue with that. But the original story of Joseph Smith is one, one personage that he saw, not two. That's interesting. I want, did, does that uh, account still say that 
uh, I heard a voice say, this is my beloved son, hear him. It, it, it very well could have, but you, you see, that language also exists in the Book of Mormon. When Jesus arrives, they hear this voice from heaven. As, as Jesus makes himself present, they hear God saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. But again, that means this is my this is my physical form on earth, right? And that's what it means. And so um, when Jesus comes to the people, his very first words are, hey, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Father and the Son. And, and what I think we get in this is that when God's speaking from heaven, we get the voice of God. But when God's speaking from earth, we get the voice of Jesus because it's his fleshly presence of it. And there's places where if you look in Nephi's... Um, I think it's in the end of Nephi's vision or it's in the end of Nephi's writings. He, he talks in the same paragraphs. I'll have to find it and look it up. First, it's God speaking and then it's Jesus Christ speaking and then it's God speaking and Jesus Christ speaking. And what, what I see through this is that when it's God speaking, we're getting like the eternal laws. And, and then when it's Jesus, it's, we're getting his commandments and counsel for how to act it out on earth. You see, there's the, um, the use of God instead of father, right? which, right. which continues. That wouldn't be in the Hebrew, but in, in our words, they're both God, but one's the Father, one's the Son. Right, right, right. Um, but, but I don't, you know. But I, I take the definition that um, Abinadi got killed for, that the Father is the Son, and, and not in a biological relationship that we kind of think because that's how it works in this world. But that the the Son simply that he submitted that God submitted to be like us so that he could save us. And that's why he was called the son. That's what Abinadi yeah. teaches. One of the, the other arguments or things that we hear often is, is this uh, idea that, well, what's the greater sacrifice to, to, to give up your life or to send your son to die? And that, that would be the greater sacrifice that uh, for a father. But, I think we again apply human emotion right. and human thinking to that, um, because if God is eternal, then I don't know how the separation works. But it's not like um, he was without his son for thirty-three years while he was here on the earth. Yeah. That's that's it, this goes way beyond my understanding. But an, an eternal God is always eternal. The Father is always eternal, whereas he took on flesh and blood and stepped into time for a period that he still also, through <laughs> my pitiful little brain, he still also existed as the Father and the order over everything. Right, right. And, you know, there's so much of creation we don't understand. I think that it's interesting because just based on what you said so well, that's like, we, we can't even comprehend God, but I think what stumps people sometimes, and this is sometimes the, the stumbling block for, well, Jesus couldn't be God, or why did he pray to himself in the garden, you know, or things like that? You know, you, you, you could ask that question about a thousand things Jesus did, though. You know, why did he pray at all, right? But it, the whole point is, I think that if you're in the physical form, no matter who your spirit is, you need you strength. To, you the, need strength. You uh, have to pray, right? That's the principle. Here's yeah. something that'll blow your mind, and you probably haven't listened to this, but um, I think this was this may not even be out yet. Uh, when I was talking to Faye, part one's out. Faye Shaw up in Lamoni, she shared a testimony of her husband. This this blew my mind. I never have thought about this, and apparently he never had either, and he didn't really share this in his life. But she said, "I'll share it now because you know he's passed away." Her her husband, um, gay was sitting on the couch and he was reading his book of Mormon and he saw the, um, he was thinking about Moroni and how sad that must've been mm -hmm. to be alone mm -hmm. and to see the, and he said, the spirit spoke to him and said, pray for him. He's like, well, what, what pray for him? He's already gone and passed three times. So, so strong that he, and it revealed to him, like, I am eternal, and your mm. prayers, I can take that prayer and put it wherever I want to put it <laughs> oh my and pray for pray for him. Wow. So that may rub some people the wrong way or whatever. I thought that that's a pretty interesting concept, wow. and I don't, I don't want to doubt his testimony at all that that surely took place, and maybe that was some understanding that he gained on 
the majesty of God. I'm sorry, but my mind just went to the Back to the Future movie, two <laughs> and three, where he comes back and he comes back two, yeah. three times to see himself. No, you know, that is really, really interesting to mention that because you consider that time is only measured to us. God can do whatever he wants in time. Wow. what a That's amazing. Um, yeah, it, it was cool. As I, w- <laughs> I woke up that morning, I told you, on the, I woke up that morning. And, and if um, this isn't proof that we can talk about anything, cause <laughs> we've always just had these casual conversations, right? But I, I woke up that morning and, and the thought came to study the prayers of the Book of Mormon and to go through, and I, I'm, I'm in a process of going through and just looking at every time a prayer was offered. Um, so I was thinking about that on my way up to Lamona, and then when we got there, I, t- I kind of told her that offhand. She goes, well, that's interesting. That's one of the most powerful testimonies of my life. And she was at the mounds in Ohio, mm-hmm. and um, there was this lookout tower, and the park was closed, but the park ranger came walking up to her, and, and, and somehow she talked her way to just spend a little bit of time, and then she would leave. And, um, and so she went and prayed, and she said as she was praying, she just felt this powerful to prayer to pray like Enos had prayed for the people, wow. and um, and as she was coming down, she was w- walking along the gravel path, and she heard the crunching of feet. She goes, "Oh, here comes the park ranger to to yell at me again!" And she turned around, and nobody was there, but mm-hmm. she knew there was someone there, and the Lord had let her know that that He um, had allowed Enos to be there because his great his great request was that uh, that that would go to the people wow. and to hear someone in this day and age also pray for that wow. would be uh, because that record had been brought forth. Wow. You know, that's, that's really cool because we only get the words we get, but that his prayer must have had been of such passion, you know, and so mm-hmm. uh, just so 100% for no, this is really, really important that this word goes back to my people someday. And, and, and plus that they could be satisfied with an answer. You're going to get your wish and it's going to happen way after you're dead, you know, thousands of years, literally. Right. But that, but that it was going to be answered still mm-hmm. someday after all this time had passed. One other thing about prayer and I won't, I won't share the whole testimony. I told you and um, I share, I think with Bob when we were out in the desert and Kristen woke up and was crying because her head hurt so bad. I've never seen her cry from a headache. She gets real bad headaches, but we prayed out loud, Weston and myself, and just kind of mm. held her and prayed for her. And within 20 minutes, the headache was completely gone. Mm. She hasn't even had one since then. Wow. Yeah, you uh, shared with about what Weston. But what I was pondering on since then was I am such a sinner and a sinful person, and I know my, my weaknesses and things, but that didn't stop God from blessing my wife. And you talk about an earnest prayer. I mean, if— that was as earnest a prayer as I could ever ask for. I couldn't stand to see her suffer. That um, He blessed us not because, like, Weston and I had some superpower or anything. We're just sinful people. He blessed us because he's a father that loves us, and he saw probably our earnest caring for another one of his children. Oh. Uh, I thought back to the time after COVID that Kristen couldn't taste her food for weeks and couldn't smell anything, still can't smell anything. And we were sitting in sacrament one morning and I was just started thinking about her and I thought she's never complained, Lord. She's never, she's, she's kind. She serves others. She's never complained. She's never asked for anything. And I, I said, Lord, just, if you could just give her back her taste. And I, and I just said an earnest prayer for her. And the next morning I got a test. She goes, man, these eggs are good. And I didn't even, I was like, oh, good. And then later I was like, What? She goes, yeah, my taste is back. <laughs> After the communion. Too. Yeah. Wow. The next morning. Wow. So you think, well, that's coincidence, is it? That that it's been gone for over a couple of months and all of a sudden that happens and it's back? I would say it's it would be more hard to believe that mm-hmm. that wasn't coincidence mm-hmm. or that it was coincidence than, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it seems to me the probability is it's tied to the to that prayer. And I believe it was. But again, that was an earnest prayer for someone that I cared about and loved and and um, he did it not because I have a special power, but because he loves her. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times I think in our church, we look back at our church history and testimonies and things, and we use that to say, well, we, it must have been a righteous group that was on the right track and all of these things are going to come to pass. And, and I think, well, I think there was a great power of the Lord working during those times as, as you know, his plan was coming forth and the Book of Mormon was going forth. 
it doesn't mean that everything they did was perfect or true or mm-hmm. right on point. It was because the Lord loved them because they were his children. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In spite of their sins. Yeah, and if we can look beyond their sin and error and just say, okay, what are the eternal principles? I mean, the Book of Mormon spells them out so clearly. And hope in those things, you know, hope in those things that the, the Book of Mormon teaches that it's it's when the hearts of the covenant people change that all these prophecies we've sure been looking forward to start to start to unfold. <laughs> and, so, and somebody said something that sounded like serious. <laughs> well, you know, this, um, what you mentioned about prayer and time is, it, it's beautiful. I, I've got a little testimony on this too that, you know, many years ago, it's been over 10 years ago, I, I just from time to time have gone and taken a few days to just go and pray and fast. And this was actually, I think, the first time that I ever just, kind of talked to my family and said, hey, if you guys don't mind, I'm going to go away for a while and just spend some time by myself. It's not to get away from you guys. It's just because I want to have some alone time with God and just have him be the only thing on the agenda. And so um, I just remember the first morning being up in the mountains, waking up and getting out before the sun came up and just having my mind clear and hearing these words pray for, and it was one of my children's names. And it was like in that moment, and I, I won't go through the whole story right now, but how I was led to pray, and I didn't even know why, because at the time that one child, it seemed like everything was was going perfectly and everything. And what's caused me concern over the years is because then I'd seen challenges in that child of mine's life, and that and the and things that have just seemed to be um, much harder challenges than anyone else I've I've known has has had to face and deal with. And sometimes I've been caused to wonder, well, God, you know, I even heard you tell me. I was like, I never use these words, God told me. But if there was an, ever a moment in life where I feel like God told me something, it was in that moment. And it was, it came with such, I mean, it just filled my core, my inner being. And nevertheless, just like Enos is like, his his prayers were effective and yet they were not immediate. You know, he didn't see the change in the people in his own lifetime, right? Right. And that could be ours, but never doubt, never doubt that when God puts that in your heart to pray for someone, that it isn't his leadings. And like you say, all he's got to work with are sinners anyhow, Mm -hmm. you know, to pray. And it's like, but when our passion becomes locked with his will, it it does beautiful things that can go beyond our days, you know? And And Enos is... For all intents and purposes, that prayer still hasn't reached its fulfillment yet. Exactly. And I was just going to say, and, and, you know, for just like anyone listening, you've got people in your own life who you've been praying for and, and you are passionate for them. And God hears all your prayers and he has not given up. And so don't you give up. And I and I believe the same for me because sometimes I've wanted to say, well, that must have been nothing. Then That must have been something I was just making up, you know, to feel like God was really telling me just out of the blue to pray for this person that in the moment, I couldn't think of any reason why I really needed to pray. But this, I can see that God knew the future and God knew knows all of our futures. But nevertheless, He's a God of mercy who loves us, and our prayers have some effect on time and space and matter and the hearts of people, and that your will going up to him in, in prayer offers you know, a fortress of protection. It offers a sword uh, you know, of offense and, and defense, and it, it provides um, nourishment. It gives strength, it gives life, it brings peace. All these things that we can't tangibly necessarily feel or see um, are are sealed in heaven when we when we seal these things on earth. And, and God's not bound by time. He's, yeah. So those prayers uh, yeah. are just as important now as they will be tomorrow and, and 10 years from now and even on probably on the other side of the veil, as we know. Amen. Uh, the fullness of the gospel teaches that when you die, it's not over, you yeah. know, heaven or hell, that there's there's a great uh, justice and mercy that continues. Exactly. And that in the end, in the end, the, the most important thing is that our hearts change and we acknowledge him when we come to him. And that it doesn't mean <laughs> you and I both know there's there are valleys in life. You know, there are low spots, there are hard spots, and sometimes you wonder if you're ever going to get out of them. But uh, we have this God who loves us, and uh, uh, he just wants to bring us home to him. And so we pray that um, as 
he brings us home, that we just enjoy the journey as we walk each other home. Amen. Well, hey, good conversation without the computer. Even better. (laughs) (laughs) Until next time. Thanks, brother.